الله الرحمن الرحيم وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Welcome back to the beginning of guidance for Muslim women. I'm Um Abdullah and I'm very happy to be joining you again for another episode in our series on Imam Ghazali's foundational book of guidance for Muslims in their daily life and in their states of heart and interaction with people. Alhamdulillah, we have reached at this point now the actual beginning of daily practice. We have had quite a journey through the beginning part of the book, through the introduction and through Imam Ghazali's introduction on obedience, which we spoke about with some modern contextualization in our last episode, uh, as well as looking at what he says about it and about obedience being the key to gaining acceptance and gaining the contentment of Allah Most High. If there are a few words and concepts, key words and concepts that we could take from our previous episodes, it would be to be aware of yourself and to know what you are doing and why, to formulate a good intention, to be wary of the traps and the tricks that lie on the path, particularly from the lower self and from shaitan, the accursed, and to know that your ultimate outcome of goodness in both this world and the next. So your sa'ada, your happiness, your blissfulness, inshallah, is dependent on the fulfillment of that which has been obligated upon you and the avoidance of that which has been prohibited. And also to act upon the knowledge that you learn. So that would really be a bit of a summary of what we have covered and I thank you for bearing with me as we have gone through that section, the introduction, and we have looked at what Imam Ghazali and other scholars have said about the key issues in it. So in this episode, inshallah, we will be beginning with the etiquettes of waking from sleep and as the day begins. First, our dua for seeking knowledge. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Allahumma inni nawaitu ta'alama wa ta'alim wa tathakur wa tathkir wa nafu al-intifa' wa al-ifada wa al-istifada wa al-hatha ala tamasuki bi kitabillahi wa sunnati rasulih wa dua ila al-huda wa dalalata ala al-khair ibtigha wa jahillahi wa maradatihi wa kurbihi wa thawabihi subhanahu wa ta'ala the meaning of that dua of Imam al-Haddad, rahimahullah, is All praise to Allah, Lord of the worlds. I intend to learn and teach, to remember and remind, to benefit myself and to benefit others, to derive usefulness and extend it to others, to encourage adherence to the book of Allah and the sunnah of his messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, to call to guidance, direct towards good, seeking thereby the countenance of Allah, his divine pleasure, closeness, and his reward, the most exalted and high. Inshallah, ameen. Let's begin with our section. Faslun fi adab al-istiqadi minan The etiquette of waking from sleep. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Imam Ghazali says, and we ask Allah to benefit us by him and by his knowledge in the two abodes, inshallah, from his book, Bidai till he died, the beginning of guidance. Faqat. 
فإذا استيقظت من النوم فاجتهد أن تستيقظ قبل طلوع الفجر وليكون أول ما يجري على قلبك ولسانك ذكر الله تعالى He says when you awake from sleep try to be awake before dawn and let the first words in your heart and on your tongue be the remembrance of Allah Most High and then he will give us a couple of du'as of supplications to make when we wake up first thing. So we wake up and before we've lifted our heads off the pillow and stood up or done anything else, then at that first moment of consciousness, then we need to train ourselves to think immediately of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not to go to the phone. Um, depends how many times you hit snooze as well. But assuming that you're awake enough and conscious enough to be able to have thoughts come into your heart and on your tongue, then inshallah those thoughts and words should be the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Our commentator, Al-Imam Al-Jawi, alhamdulillah, rahimahullah, and may Allah benefit us by his knowledge, has said quite a few interesting things about that. Imam Ghazali says that you must try to awake before tulu al-fajr, so before the time when the adhan, when the prayer call for fajr, the morning prayer, would sound. And he says... The reason for that, obviously, is so that a person can pray to Hajjud, so that they can pray the night prayer in the last part of the night and then, of course, be ready and prepared to pray the Fajr prayer at the very first of the time in which it enters. And we know that praying at the beginning of the waqt, of the time for the prayer, has far more barakah and is far more beneficial for a person than delaying it until the end, unless, of course, there is a sound and valid reason for needing to delay it later in the time. However, if a person wakes at tahajjud time and they get up and they pray just two rakahs, just two prayer cycles and make dua and seek forgiveness from Allah, then inshallah, not only will their duas be answered, but they will have sought and found Allah who descends, not physically of course, but his rahmah descends in the last third of the night and he asks, where are the people who are seeking from me? Where are the people whom I can forgive? And if anybody needs anything, then that's the time to ask. So although our commentator doesn't go into that a lot, we know from general spiritual practices that the most potent time of any part of the day or night is in that last third of the night and everyone is encouraged very strongly to train themselves to wake up and to pray that. However, if a person cannot or does not for whatever reason and they're in the process of training themselves, then you should try, as Imam Ghazali says, to wake up just before the time so that you can pray at the beginning of the time. And Al-Jawi says that when you actually pray at the beginning, what you are doing is still praying in a moment of darkness because when the first thread of light comes in, then it's still actually dark. And even though in our cities we have so much electricity, we can't see that. But if you go somewhere remote and you'll notice that although you can see the first thread of light in the sky, it's still dark. And when you pray at that time, then the angels of the night are present 
And then if you stay and you read your prayers and if you read a long salah or if you even read a short prayer and then you sit for a while, then inshallah the angels of the day will be present because they swap. The ones of the night go back and the ones of the day come and each will record for you your prayer. He also mentions that when the day changes from darkness into light, at that time it's a metaphorical explanation for the awakening of the human being. So when the person wakes up, they wake up from a state of darkness, of being covered through sleep, into a time of being awake and illumination through the regeneration and the activation of their heart and their mind and they have come back to life. And this is a metaphor for death and for life. And we know from the hadith that Allah has created sleep and called it the little brother of death because when a person goes to sleep, then their soul is removed and can actually wander around and interact with other souls from the barzakh, from the intermediary realm. And when people have dreams and they see people in their dreams, then they have actually interacted with other souls. And then at the moment of waking, then the person's soul is returned to their body. However, it might be that somebody doesn't wake up. And then it would be that that moment of sleep had been their passing into the next realm where their soul does not return to the life of the dunya. And who else could it be who's capable of bringing forth the soul from a state that resembles death back into life? Imam Ujawi says that this awakening is the time when the illnesses of the heart can be dispersed. And he says that what needs to be eliminated from the heart in terms of illnesses is love of this dunya, love of this worldly life and seeking it. Also jealousy or envy and pride. And he says that the prophets have come like skilled surgeons and they're the ones who have told us about this and obligated us to acts of obedience and worship from the beginning of the day so that we might rid ourselves of these illnesses and that we might see something bigger than that, which is this whole changing from darkness into light. And inshallah, not only would we experience that physically with the eyes, but that the hearts would also turn and change accordingly. Okay, let's go on to Imam al-Ghazali's du'a here, which is recorded in all the main du'a books. So if you have a little book on the most common du'as, then any one of these, if not all of them, should be in there. So he says that when a person wakes, they should say, Alhamdulillahilladhi ahyana ba'dama amatana wa ilayhin nushur, asbahna wa asbaha al-mulku lillah, wal-adhamatu wa-sultana lillah, wal-izzatu wal-kudratu lillah. Praise be to Allah who has brought us back to life after causing us to die and to whom shall be the resurrection. We have entered the morning as has the dominion belonging to Allah, grandeur and might belong to Allah. Magnificence and power belong to Allah. He goes on, Asbahna ala fitratil Islam wa ala kalimatil ikhlas wa ala dini nabiyina Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa ala millati abina Ibrahim hanifan muslima wa ma kana minal mushrikeen. We have entered the morning upon the natural faith of submission. So ala fitratil Islam, on the fitra, on the primordial disposition of being servants who are conscious of the fact that we have 
a covenant with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as we've uh, probably mentioned before, that we are here to worship him. So how do we worship him? By following the deen, the religion of Islam. So this reminds us when we say that, that oh, I've woken up as a worshipful servant. So now I'm reminded and I can step forth into my day on that basis. So we've entered the morning upon the natural faith of submission upon the word of sincerity in the religion of our Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and the nation of our father Abraham, who was a pure monotheist and one who submitted to God and who was not one of the idolaters. And again, Imam Ghazali says, Allahumma bika asbahna wa bika amsayna wa bika nahya wa bika namuj wa ilayka nushur. Oh Allah, by you we enter the morning. Bika, so with Allah or by Allah, we enter the morning. Asbahna, we awake. And by you we enter the evening. Amsayna, by you we live and by you we die. And the resurrection is to you. Allahumma inna nas'aluka an taba'athana fi hadhal yawmi ila kulli khair. Wa na'udhu bika an najtariha fihi su'an. أو نجره إلى مسلم أو يجره أحد إلينا. Oh Allah, we ask you to send us to every good thing on this day, and we seek your protection from doing evil this day, from bringing it upon a Muslim or from anyone bringing it upon us. نسألك خير هذا اليوم خير ما فيه ونعوذ بك من شره وشر ما فيه. We ask you for the good of this day and the best of what it holds and we seek refuge with you from the evil of this day and the evil of what it holds. So what we're asking here is first of all we are praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we start the day with alhamdulillah. We praise Allah, we glorify him and we state who he is and we know that his magnificence and power has brought us back into our state of life. And we mention straight away that we are Muslims on the word of sincerity, on ikhlas, um, the religion of our Prophet وسلم, and Nabi Ibrahim السلام, and we enter the morning we, and we enter the evening only by you. So our existence is contingent. So everything that we are and what we do is completely with the power and the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we seek refuge in him from doing evil to ourselves by sinning and doing it to other Muslims, and we ask for the best of the day and what it holds. So that's really complete. I mean, what better way to start the day than with saying all those things and affirming that in our heart and waking up with a good and positive feeling. And it would be impossible to start the day off in a foul mood or grumpy or angry about something when we have opened up our heart completely and exposed it to the outpourings of divine mercy and goodness and then to get up, to get dressed, to prepare ourselves for prayer and then to pray. What a most Mubarak way to begin the day. There is another hadith where the Prophet said, Burikat ummati fi bukuriha, which means that my ummah is blessed in its beginning, in its early part of the day. And inshallah, the expression, the early bird catches the worm, 
also summarizes that. And we know that if we start the day well, then inshallah, the rest of the day will be Mubarak. We'll find that our time doesn't go so quickly, that we're able to achieve more. And these are some of the benefits that Allah bestows upon us when we wake up and orientate ourselves and align ourselves and turn back to him from the very first step. Sometimes people sleep very heavily and they're unable to wake up and they might require several alarm clocks or they may even require to have water wiped over their face or splashed on their face. And this is something that whoever suffers from very heavy sleep should seek refuge in Allah from and should seek to find ways to change that aspect of themselves. Because really sleep has its own ladha, its own pleasure and its joy. And people sometimes crave to go to sleep so they can feel that experience, that sweetness of a good night's sleep and a good rest. However, we also know that that's something that the shaitan can exploit. And there are hadith on the shaitan who, when a person fails to wake up at fajr time, then he uses the person's ear as a toilet. And I heard a story about recently about some young uh, Saudi guys who had travelled to another city. There was a group of them, about four or five, and they were staying in a hotel apartment. And one of them was a person of kashf, of someone who had spiritual realities unveiled to him. And he woke up, he went to the mosque and he came back towards the sunrise and he walked into the apartment and he saw one of his friends there sleeping and he saw a figure who was holding something that looked like a hose and was urinating in his friend's ear. And that's when he knew for sure that this was a real thing. And of course, he jumped up and he woke his friend and he said, the shaitan has just used your ear as a toilet, you must get up. And some of our scholars say too that a person who lets the adhan of fajr go by without having woken, then they also are subject to the possibility of shaitan using their ear as a toilet. So this is something that we need to remember. This is something usually from the unseen, unless Allah exposes us to that. We ask Allah to protect us from such filth. And we also ask Allah to give us the himma, the spiritual ambition and the motivation to get up and to seek the very first of this most Mubarak and blessed time. Imam Ghazali goes on and he says, فَإِذَا لَبِسْتَ ثِيَابَكَ فَنْوِي بِهِمْ تِثَالَ أَمْرِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَ فِي سَتْرِ عَوْرَتِكَ وَحْذَرْ أَنْ يَكُونَ قَسْتُكَ مِنْ لِبَاسِكَ مُرَاءَةَ الْخَلْقِ فَتَخْسُرْ He goes on to talk about dressing now after you wake because that would be the first thing you do. And he says, thereafter, when you get dressed, make your intention, your intention for getting dressed, obedience to Allah's command by covering yourself appropriately. Beware, lest your intention in wearing your clothes be to display before people and you suffer loss. Okay, we could talk for a long time about clothes, being women and being Muslim women and a lot of people from amongst us living in Western countries and really feeling what it means to dress like a Muslim woman. But first of all, we will just have a quick look at what Al-Jawi says about that. And the main point that he makes is that when a person dresses, then it shouldn't be for riyah, for ostentation and for showing off. As Imam Ghazali warns, when he says, 
Beware lest you dress to display before people because anybody who shows off in any action suffers loss because what they're doing is they're seeking a validation or a reward from that person for what they're doing when in actual fact they should be seeking sincerely all the time the validation and approval and acceptance and ultimately the reward from Allah for the purity of their act for how it conforms to the sharia, to the divine law, for how it conforms to the sunnah of the Prophet and how sincerely and truthfully the person fulfills that act. And clothing, because it's the external aspect of ourselves that we show the world, is a very important place to start with understanding that concept of ostentation. Imam Ujawi says that Al-Imam Ujawi tells us that if a person, and he's talking about scholars, he addresses in a certain way to show the greatness of Islam and to show the beauty of this religion expressed through the way in which its adherents and followers dress themselves, then that's a praiseworthy intention. So a Muslim should try to always be clean and tidy and to dress in a way which is dignified and would allow people to say, hmm, there's something about these Muslims. They compose themselves and they hold themselves in a certain way and they have etiquette in the way that they dress. And you will find people who will often come across a group of Muslim women, for example, and be really quite taken aback by how beautiful they look, all covered up and modest. And I don't mean beauty as in beauty standards and Instagram standards. I mean, with the haba, with the awe and the dignity that modesty actually gives to a person. When Imam Ghazali talks about showing off with clothes, what he's talking about is an excessiveness in the way in which somebody would choose to dress. That would be according to the standards of the society that they are in, extremely flamboyant or luxurious or expressive in a way that the ordinary people wouldn't dress. However, we have to remember that if it is that Allah has blessed you with more rizq, with more sustenance, and that you have more money with which to buy better quality clothing and more expensive clothes, then, of course, you are able to show the blessing that Allah has given you. But it should never be with the intention of showing that off in a way that makes other people who don't have as much money as you feel bad about themselves. Because then you're putting something in the heart of others which is negative towards you and you're actually encouraging people to be jealous of you. And you should never want to put yourself in a position to make other people jealous of you and to bring about a type of discomfort in the hearts of others. That's not the state of a believing person. Okay, everybody is of different means and you will spend money and live according to your means. But be conscious of other people and be conscious of those who might look at you with the aim of jealousy, with the eye of jealousy, for indeed that will lead to their ruin and possibly bring some ruinous state to you. Although this book is not a book of fiqh, it's not a book of legal rulings, it's general guidelines, when that's appropriate, inshallah, we will talk about different fiqh issues. And of course, now is the time to talk about women's clothing and what is permissible in the Sharia and what is not. And really, the Sharia, the divine law, the sacred law of Islam is very, very easy because there are only two conditions that need to be met for women's clothing. 
So we know that what's permissible for a woman to show in public is her face and her hands. And just for definition, the face is defined as the space between the roots of the hair at the front and the chin and from one ear to the other ear. So anything that falls outside of that, which would be the rest of the hair, the ears, under the chin to the neck, um, the neck itself and the chest, that's all considered aura and that's a, or nakedness and that's a part that needs to be covered. So the only thing that can be exposed is the actual face itself within those limitations. And the hand is what is defined as what comes from the wrist bone. So you'll see that round bone on your wrist down, okay, to the tips of your fingers. The forearm is aura and needs to be covered and so is the elbow and the upper arm, obviously. And the rest of the body should be covered in a modest way. But what are the two conditions that actually define that modesty? Well, they're very simple. One is that the clothes should be fault fault, and that's a word that means loose and baggy. And it actually comes from uh, the, the Arabic word, which is the sound of the tent flap blowing in the wind. So if you can imagine a tent that's pitched and there's the opening, the door of the tent and it's flapping, then it will make a fod, fod, fod type of sound. And that's where it comes from. So it means loose and baggy and something that will billow in the wind. And the other condition is that it should not be shafaf. And shafaf means to be transparent. The clothes should not be transparent. They should not be see-through. And that also means that they shouldn't be held by a belt or by some other type of accessory which would cling to the body and show the shape of the body. So they should be loose and they should be opaque materials that in the light don't show, for example, the shape of the legs or any other shape of the arms or the shoulders or the torso. So really it's very simple to dress in Islam. And I've noticed that there seems to be a trend in people thinking that the more black they wear or the more Arab looking they wear, that the more pious they are. And I want to mention that that's not actually the case because the black clothes and the very Arab looking, Saudi looking clothes are very much a product of Saudi culture. And that's totally fine. And I have absolutely no problem with that. I wear black all the time myself. I always have. Even before I was Muslim, I always wore black. So it was very natural for me to go into wearing black clothes because that's just what I always did. But for other people who live in different societies, a sign of a person's piety is not in how much they can emulate another culture's clothing. And a person should find what's suitable for the place in which they live that adheres to the two conditions of being loose and opaque and then they should dress appropriately and and behave in an appropriate way for somebody who bears the clothes of a believing worshipper of Allah and a person who seeks to follow the Prophet وسلم, and to emulate him in his modesty because the real key to dressing is knowing that the inner essence and the secret of it is in being modest. And there is a hadith, لِكُلِّ دِينِ خُلُقْ وَخُلُقُ الْإِسْلَامِ The Prophet ﷺ said that every religion has its character and the character of Islam or the virtue of Islam is حَيَاء. It means modesty, it means 
a bashfulness and an unwillingness to expose oneself in any way. And the Prophet ﷺ was an extremely modest person, not just physically, but also the state of his heart. And when Imam Ghazali talks about taqwa being the beginning of guidance inwardly and outwardly, then a part of our inner taqwa, of our inner modesty and the training of ourselves and the purification of our heart also has an outer manifestation, which is in how we present ourselves to the world and the clothes that we wear. So when a person presents themselves modestly and they have an outer taqwa, then inshallah their heart will also have an inner taqwa and that will prevent them from thinking poorly of others or from having anger or from having diseases of the heart and they will feel ashamed that they should think a certain way or act a certain way or allow themselves to get too much out of control without correcting themselves. And of course, what better way to sum that up than the verse from the Quran, meaning the clothing of righteousness that is best. So inshallah, our clothes are much more important to us sometimes than we think. And I heard a young teacher saying once, she was addressing a group of teenage girls, and she said to them, it's very hard to feel pious in a pair of tight jeans. And I thought that was such a great statement because I don't believe, and having come from a non-Muslim background and seeing the two sides of what it means to dress in a way that's not modest and then to dress in a way that is modest, I don't believe that anybody who dresses immodestly is purely expressing themselves. I believe it is always mixed up with trying to get approval or at least get a glance and a look and to get attention for oneself. When people say, oh, I just like to dress this way, the reason why people like to dress this way and expose themselves is because they like the attention that they get. And as Muslims, we should try to be as far removed from that attitude and that state of heart as possible, because that's a state of heart that is very khabith. There's a a type of filth associated with it because it's cheap and it's low. And so we shouldn't try and turn our Muslim clothes, our modesty into something which resembles that. We shouldn't try to make ourselves look like we fit in by emulating the worst aspect of other people's clothing. If we want to fit in with the different societies in which we live, then sure, wear a really wide leg pants and wear a shirt with long sleeves and wear the colours that are in fashion if that's what you need to do because of your workplace or for whatever reason. And if you want to blend in like that, but don't break those two conditions of it being loose and of being opaque. And if you can do that and fit in and feel more comfortable like that, then that's absolutely fine. And if your behavior is one of a person who guards their modesty and who is careful about what they say and that you have an inner state of taqwa as well as an outer state of taqwa, then your dressing and your whole comportment and being, inshallah, will be one that reflects the dignity of Islam and the dignity of a believer. And then there's absolutely no reason for a Muslim woman to descend into trying to emulate really ugly and cheap ways of looking in order to get acceptance from people. So to retain your dignity, then follow the proper way of dressing and you will see that people will have a good response to you and most importantly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will be the one who accepts you, inshallah. 
One thing that always stands out for me as a convert, as somebody who has embraced Islam, the very first thing I felt when I started to cover and to wear hijab and to try and dress more appropriately as a Muslimah, and it took some time. I mean, I have to say one of the things that was difficult for me at the beginning was the dress code, but I knew that that was the right thing to do. And so probably for about a month I struggled and I really had to go and buy clothes that were appropriate because as an Australian, non-Muslim, middle class, all the rest, then I certainly had my own perceptions about what dressing was and how to present myself. So I had to really um, look for things and go to the Muslim areas that I wasn't living in and try and find clothing that would be suitable and try and find hijabs and get used to this new way of presentation. Even though it was very hard, at the beginning, what I actually realized and grasped onto was the fact that I felt so liberated because I was no longer being objectified because of the way that I looked. And apart from no longer drawing those gazes that I had drawn before, I was more liberated from inside myself because I no longer felt trapped into having to present myself in a way to get validation and approval from other people for the way that I looked. And I really felt for the first time that this is what true freedom is, is to be yourself without being restricted by what other people think of you with regards to your external appearance. And that was very powerful because I had really based a lot of myself and my identity on how other people perceived me, just like everybody else out there. And of course, this was years before social media. And I can't even imagine the pressure that young people and Men and women, like our youth and all people of all ages, I just can't imagine the pressure that people are under to conform to these beauty standards which are deluding people that somehow they are expressing themselves and that they are beautiful and they're in control when they are nothing more than just tools for people to control them through purchasing power through branding, through consumerism, and really making people feel so insecure and inadequate and weak and depressed about who they are. And the most liberating thing a person can do is to throw all that off and to cover yourself where people cannot judge you by the way that you look and to hold your head up high as a respectable and respected and dignified woman and that you don't need to show your body to anyone in order to be validated for who you are. You are a human being, you have a soul, you have an intelligence, you have an intellect, you have a heart, you have feelings, you have thoughts, you have an internal beauty which can only really be expressed when you don't attach that beauty of yourself to your outer. Yes, we all want to look nice and that's fine. And as long as that's done in a way that doesn't draw a type of fitna or it doesn't make problems and make people who shouldn't be attracted to you attracted to you. If you're married, you need to be attractive to your husband. And that's why the wisdom is that at home you dress up. Okay, you don't run around in pajamas all day. You should dress, make yourself nice at home and always have clean teeth and smell good 
and make yourself beautiful and presentable to your husband. And if you are not married or if you are married and you go out, then you don't show yourself and your beauty to people who are not halal for you, meaning what? That you're not married to them. So if you're not married to somebody, then why do you need to show yourself off to them? What are you hoping to gain from that? And if you think that that's how you're going to attract a husband for yourself, then you should think, what sort of husband do I want? Because if the person that you're hoping to steal his glances and to get him to approve of you just because of the way you look, then that might be somebody who's not of the best character. And the person you should be seeking to marry is somebody with the best character, regardless of their job, regardless of their nationality or language or ethnic background or anything else but the first thing you should look for is piety and good character and deen and then inshallah all the other things will come with that so be selective and be clever and wise and don't degrade yourself thinking that somehow oh if I look a certain way then he'll like me more or if I present myself like this then there's more of a chance of me showing him about myself no you have to present yourself all the time in the most dignified and respectable way because that's the only way that you'll get respect. And if it is that you want a man who doesn't think like that, then you want the wrong man and you need to rethink that, okay? And you need to think about your own value and your own worth. Yes, it's true that people change and yes, it's true that young people and young men are very much caught up into this whole superficial and fake and plastic thing and they also need to learn and be taught by the men in the community about how to be a man and how to look for a woman and how to present themselves if they want to get married and to develop and nurture and cultivate good character in themselves but from the women's point of view for a married woman to go out and to flaunt herself is completely unacceptable and for an unmarried woman and even though it's very difficult sometimes and there's a lot of pressure the best thing she can do is to hold herself and her comportment in the most respectable way possible if she wants to get married then inshallah she needs to follow the proper means to achieve that the first is dua the second is to go through her parents and family members and people who will help her select someone who's suitable and not to go looking by herself on Instagram and Facebook and all the rest looking. If she uses a matrimonial website, that needs to be done with a parental supervision or a guardian or an older brother or somebody who's able to help steer her through. And this is why in Muslim societies we don't have a Me Too culture. Because we have a, a way and a means built in to protect our women. And so women need, first of all, to protect themselves and the rest of society needs to step in and to help her maintain her modesty and her integrity and her dignity at every step of the way. And this is part of the beauty of our religion and the completeness and the wholeness of our religion whereby a person's modesty is never compromised in any situation. And we could talk on and on and on about this. However, I hope that that's enough to get the point across, inshallah. And may Allah bless us in our endeavors and give the best husbands and wives to those who are seeking husbands and wives and bring forth from them pious offspring, inshallah. And may we not fall into the traps of shaitan and the traps of our lower selves, which seek only to degrade us and denude us and to let us fall into folly. So that's just some extra thoughts that I wanted to share because I know from my own experience 
that incredible sense of freedom that I felt when I no longer had to succumb to those societal rules that I thought I had to succumb to in order to be considered a reasonable person or to be accepted. So alhamdulillah rabbil alameen, alhamdulillah for Islam, alhamdulillah for Iman, alhamdulillah for the preservation of ourselves as Muslim women. And inshallah, we ask Allah to make us of women whose real libas, whose real clothing is piety and who are able to fulfill that inwardly and outwardly inshallah. Okay, so we'll leave it there and inshallah I hope to join you for our next episode. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.